Ibn Taymiyyah Rimullah writes his Majbul Fatawa about the 15th of Shaban. Quote, As for the 15th of Shaban, there are many riwayat and atha. Riwayat means hadith. Be they zayf. In terms of their son, as I described and defined zayf to you. And athar means narrations of the amal of the sahaba and their statements, statements and or amal, aqwal and amal of sahaba. Regarding its virtue, in Arabic word is fazilat. It has been reported of the salaf that they prayed in this night. Therefore, praying alone in this night, having precedence in the salaf, is sufficient evidence, and something of this kind surely cannot be denied. But I discussed with the issue of this notion of it moving from the alone to the collective. I'm going to show you that playing out in the Barnabil Awal issue as well, that when you move from individual to collective. So, here maybe I can leave this with you. But, uh, Actually, we don't, I mean, sound like we have to go into all these sentences in which if I just tell you up front that one is Hassan and the rest are Zayf, so we are in this category, right? Uh, and at worst, even if you didn't accept that one, then you would put yourself in this category, all right? The next issue is 12th Rabbi Lawal. 12th Rabbi Lawal, there is no hadith that mentions the fazilat of doing any ibadat on that day. Or the fazilat of that night or day as it is, as opposed to 15th of Shaban. However, I told you, right, that the Sahaba did do things in which there was Sahaba Tabin, Tabat Tabin, Salaf and Khalaf did do new things in Nafl Ibadahat, which were not there. There's an issue with 12th Rabbi Lawa, and that is this notion of calling it Milad. And what happens is that this is something not so much in Bidat Amal, but in terms of Bidat Ittikam. That if you have a belief that our deen teaches us to celebrate or commemorate, and let's use a more neutral word, to mark the birthday, the day that our Prophet is born, right? Uh, that is actually now, that's not just an amal, now you enter the realm of aqaid, right? That this is a belief that you have, that the day that Muslim was born should be celebrated. The other side gives this view. And it's interesting, like, like many of you were saying things from your akal and your tabiyat, the other side also uses akal and tabiyat and says, look, obviously the day that the Prophet was born was a great day for this world. That was the greatest day for humanity because the greatest human being actually was born. So this is the day of to be happy about. Then you have another, there are like three sides on this, right? This is a triangle table. <laughs> right? And then you have this other thing. You see now, using our frame, this is I'm doing this here. In our framework, we are going to show you how 12th Rabil Awal is bidat, not the way people today tell you. Because people will simply tell you that the Apostle some didn't say to celebrate it. For as far as that's relevant in the framework we made, right? Not being Sabbath and the Sunnah did not put it in automatically in Bidat in the framework that I gave you. Okay. Second, that none of the Salaf celebrated it. Not being Sabbath and the Salaf does not automatically put it in Bidat according to the framework that I gave you. Right? What is it then that is making me say 12th Rabbilah was Bidat? That number one, it has an Aqidah that is against the Sharia. That you must celebrate the day that the Prophet was born. That is not an Aqidah uh, that we have. And that is an Akilah that is not acceptable to us. It doesn't mean certainly we celebrate his life. We are happy that Allah chose us to be his ummah. We're happy that Allah chose him to be our prophet. There are many, many things to be happy about. But in, in, in all those things don't have to do with his wiladat. They have to do with his nubuat. So the Akilah of our deen is that we celebrate the nubuat of the Prophet Not the wiladat of the Prophet the other side will counter back, however, and will say that the Nubuat wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for his Biladat. So they said the sabab leads to but the you know the, the cause leads to the effect. Here, okay, then we move to our next thing, which is their amas. So we say, okay, then what exactly do you do on this day? Because I'll be honest with you that there are many Arab ulama who think that commemorating this day is permissible. The most famous fatwa historically was given by Imam Jalaluddin Al-Siyyudirihimullah in his Al-Hawil Al-Fatawa. A Shafi Faqih who gave a fatwa on this issue. Sorry. A Shafi Faqih who gave a fatwa on this issue that is permissible to commemorate that day. But the, again, that other side who uses this, uses this unfairly. What did Imam Shafi, and I've read that whole fatwa myself with my own eyes. He doesn't allow the things that go on, especially in Karachi. I used to think that Lahore and Punjab were more. 
Karachi is a part of this season. So some things that I've noticed, and I really don't know, there may, must probably be much more that goes on. So number one, I notice that people put food, and they say that the Prophet comes to eat that food. Now, so now you move to an Akidah here, right? That's crazy. I mean, how can the Prophet come, you know, why would he leave Medina Munawra? <laughs> now, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I mean, right, you wouldn't leave Medina Munawra. Right? What are the zabardast alakas? You have lala, lala roof, laluket, right? Some zabardast. I was, I'm just saying this because I passed by, I'm not picking it up, but I personally passed by one of these areas once. The same thing happened in the mosque of I was in the camp. I had to stop. Right? And I actually ended up praying in that masjid. Allahu Akbar Kameera. Ajeeb namaz ko ithi. Namaz ke baal bhi ho. Matab ek birthday party hoa tha. After namaz. Like a celebration hoa tha. But so this is where I saw some of these things. Right? And I said that a puchta tha. You know, my teacher always told me that a mufti must be aware of society. Wherever you go, you should have uska ek khas mezaj abano. So, you know, to cook food. To think that the Prophet even eats, that is a problem. To think that he leaves Madonna, comes to you, that's a problem. To think that he eats your food is a problem. And the next morning when the food's not there, to be such a liar, obviously... I mean, you know, we need one of these cameras, basically, running over there to see who ate that food. And it would not be Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam who showed up and ate that food. This is a problem. Another thing I saw once was that Jamaat... Imam's Musallah, and next to the Imam's Musallah, another Musallah. As you know, when two people pray, that one on the left is a little bit ahead. They think that the Prophet is coming and doing Imamat. Allahu Akbar Kabira, right? That's, that's, that's an Akidah that is totally khilaf to the Sharia, right? And this doesn't raise, even if you look at it from an ugly perspective, it doesn't raise the shan of the Prophet in any way. And by saying to someone that he doesn't leave Medina Manabra to eat your biryani and Karachi is not in any way Gustafi Rasul. Right? I don't know what else you guys know. I mean, I mean, these are two or three things that I do know for sure that there are some people who believe. There are other things that people have told me, but I don't really know the people really think things like that. Also, what happened after the mosque is they all stand up and they recite their salam standing up. Actually, the either than that is they say that whenever we say durood, the Prophet comes to that majlis. Uh, that is like so against adab, right? I mean, who are you that the Prophet is going to come to your majlis and listen to your adab, uh, listen to your durood? You tell other me you think you stand up, right? Uh, in fact, the Prophet said clearly, that uh, when a person sends salam or salawat at my grave, I hear it, and when he sends it from anyone else, the angels bring it to me. Right? So the angels will come and take it to the Prophet. He's not going to come himself. That's another thing I've seen. Uh, other than that, also, is let's say somebody says there's some fazilat on, fa- on fasting that day. No fazilat. Right? Now, if you say somebody wants to do something extra, now, what were the reasons that we gave for extra there? So there was sawab and there was muhabbat, right? Some sahaba or tabi and tabi. In all those examples, there were two things. I'm going to get sawab. I wanted khair. Khair in the Arabic means sawab, right? That I wanted sawab. That's why I said this tasbihan. Or I said that surah khalas many times out of muhabbat. The sawab of fasting on that day is not more than any other nafl fast. So to say that there's an extra sawab for that day, you need a proof for that. That you don't have. To say you're fasting that day out of love, it's a hair, I mean, I'm being honest with you, that's a fine line, right? It just, we would just say that, okay, but the way, this is not really the way to love the Prophet that you fast on the day that he was born. Even that he was born on that day, there are different nawayat about that date. In fact, there's is agreement that he passed away from this urah on 12th Rabbulawal, Ittifaq said. But, but if he was born on that day, or I think they're 8th or 10th, there's some other akwal about the day he was born. But technically, you know, if somebody says love, it's very difficult then, right? To really, you know, it's then you're getting. See, when you're naked, you're getting into the person's heart, you're getting into their beliefs, you're getting into their intentions, and those aren't things that you can clearly know necessarily unless they, you really sit down with them and you interview them and they open up to you exactly every single intention and thought and belief they have in their heart, right? 
But uh, and not, the second thing that happens here is becoming a collective thing. And that is something that can also spill over into an activity that isn't Bidat. And that's the other thing I want to show you is that when you do things on a mass scale, then the masses will start to think that it's Sunnah. Such as, for example, making Dua after first Salam, that's not Sunnah. It's not Bidat, either. we put it in this other category. But there's some people who think, because every Imam in Pakistan does it, that it's Sunnah. And therefore, if the Imam for some reason loses, uh, doesn't do it, right? As if like some Farz or Rajab Rukan of the Salah was, had been left out. The reason the Imams in Pakistan do this, right, and you won't find this in the Arab world, although for some reason in Malaysia, uh, from what I saw in the Malaysian students in Chicago, and also I had asked some of them that in Malaysia bought it the Imams in Allah I don't know if anybody's had that experience in Malaysia. I have not been to Malaysia myself to know firsthand. Maybe they do it for the same reason that people in Pakistan do it. They say that there's certain snoon du'as and the people don't know them. Right? And so if we say that du'a and they make Amin, then Amin counts as making du'a. Right? And that much we know from the sunnah it's jayas to make collective du'a. At any time. After namaz, before namaz, non-namaz, any time of the day. A group of people can make du'a. And so that is the niyat in which the imam is doing it, that if I recite those Muslim du'as that the awam nas don't know. That's you mean you are not the awam nas So for us you can say, no, you should educate them. With the ticket, that's your crowd of people. It's better to educate them. But the average masses, right? Uh, unfortunately, I mean, you know, that's something we should also try to fix. But the reality is, is that uh, that's one thing, you know, if you go into Blikit Jamaat, you will really see how, if you ever go on the dehat, you will see that it's not a myth what they say. People really don't know anything about Islam. And, and and they're really talking from a really very large, very large statistical sample of data. And so they, I mean, I really think that they're very genuine and accurate uh, narrators of the state of Islamic knowledge and Iman in this country in terms of the awam. And they say regularly and repeatedly that people don't even know the first kalima, people don't even know basic things. And many of them are even standing in prayer without, in the daha. No idea what's going on. They might not even know Subhanahu Rabbil Adeem. They're just going to Raku. They don't even know that much. right? Obviously, if your country is 80% illiterate, so just like that, there's a religious illiteracy in this country. And it's also at that same magnitude as your basic Urdu illiteracy exists. right? It's just that mean you never interact with such people, so we don't know. So when you do something on a mass scale, what happens is people start thinking it's Sunnah. So there will be many people in Pakistan who may very well think that doing ibadat on the night of 15th of Shaban is sunnah. There may be many people who think that doing ibadat on the night of 15th of Shaban is absolute guaranteed certainty as opposed to that level of probability which is genuinely emanating from those texts. So sometimes, right, that also happens. Now, how do you deal with the bidat? How do you deal with a bidat? So let's go back and then do that reviews. How do you tell whether something is a bidat and then how do you deal with a bidat? Because that is a major thing that we have to cover, right? And let, let me, actually, because I told you, but let me show you, I also have to show you that. And the other theory, which is something that was started by Ibn Taymiyyah, precedes Albani and company. And that is, is that when he said that there was no concept of bidat hasana Right? Uh, and then like I told you, a careful reading of Ibn Timiyah does suggest, like I showed you on Taweez, on Nisfi Shaban, and on other things, on Karamat, on Kash, even we can, you know, do that for you sometime. Uh, so that he had a bit more of a detailed understanding of that. But later on, what you have is in, 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 the, in the contemporary Salafi movement, you have a very strong stance that to do anything in ibadat that is not... So what's the other definition of bidat? Other than the model I gave. That is that to do anything in ibadah that is not established from the hadith, that is bidat. Right? Now, there were some ibadat like that in the earlier scholarly tradition. But they always meant the faraiz and wajibat. And for nafil ibadat, you can do something. But for the faraiz and wajibat, you can't. But the contemporary Salafi positions, such as Uthameen, Balbani, Albani, Jarbal, some names that some of you guys were asking me about, are of that position that to do anything in Ibadat, even if it's Nafal Ibadat, that is not established from deed, that is Bidat. The problem is that, you know, the, the reason I said that you need to study and develop paradigms 
is because you need to develop a paradigm that works in every single generation. And if I take this paradigm, then all those Sahaba, Tabi'in, Tabai Tabi'in that I mentioned to you are all guilty of bidat. Ibn Hajar Asqalani, Imam al-Dhahabi, Imam al-Nawawi, Ibn al-Jawzi are all guilty of not reprimanding bidat. Right? They're not guilty, they're guilty of not identifying something as bidat. So what you really have is implications of such a paradigm are very devastating. If you just use it today, you, you're fine. And you can call everything and anything a bidat. But you can't, it's not just today then. Whatever paradigm you adopt has to be universally applied across 1400 years. That's why I always suggest that you should think carefully before you adopt a position. And what I would do for you in the earlier series was to make that box, right? And to take out the logical implications of your position. So to take that position, that anything and everything that the Prophet didn't do is bidat, then actually what you will have is you will have a large number of bidatis in every generation. You will be naming Sahaba Tabin, Tabai Tabin bidatis, you will be naming Mufasreen, Muhaddisin, Fukaha bidatis. There will be no end to it. It's not just that you will be using it on the people who are putting out the food in 12th Rabbi Lama. So it's a paradigm that is too strong. It's making too many people binati. It's too wide of a definition. It's too wide of a definition. Right? Uh, but that is their definition. And however, the interesting thing in Amal, however, and this pertains a little bit one of some questions somebody asked, is in Amal, they actually don't follow their paradigm. And what they do is they only use this for zikr. Because they have a khas chir with the sawaf. But that is another topic for another time. And for the, there are two major types of nafal ibadat, doa and zikr. If you were true to your paradigm, then you would say any du'a that anybody makes that is not in the Qur'an or not in the Adit is a bidat. So Imam Sudais, when he has opportunity, which is increasingly less every year, but when he recites the du'a kunut in Witr, in Ramadan, in Makkah in front of the Kaaba, and he begins with some du'as from the Qur'an, then begins some du'as from the Prophet and then makes du'as in his own language, in his own words, language Arabic, in his own words, that would be bidat according to their paradigm. Because that is an ibadah, that is even if it's nafa, it's a dua, but it's part of the ibadah, right? And it's being done at a collective scale, as you know, as mass broadcast live and on video and on DVD and on audio and on CD and on internet. And so many people have heard that dua, right? Uh, according to that paradigm, if we were to hold them to their paradigm, that is, if if doing zikr in any way, the way I do zikr is a bidat, then Imam Sudesh's dua is bidat. If Imam Sudesh says du'a is not bidat, the way I do zikr is not bidat. There's no and-or situation. You have to apply the usul absolutely. That's why you have to design an usul. You have to design a paradigm that can be applied universally. So that covers that. That's another side of bidat. Right? Now recap this definition of bidat and then show you how to run it through something and what to do if something becomes a bidat. Right? So number one then, it's not, it's not just sufficient that something, it's not just sufficient that something is not in the sunnah. That's not going to make it bidat. Number one, you want to see that it is khilaf is shara. Right? Number two, you want to make sure that there's no problem in that person's itikad. Number three, you want to make sure that they've not elevated the nafil or the fazilat of that act to a level that is greater, right? Made it sunnah or wajib or farz or whatever. Number four, you want to see that they do not reprimand the person who leaves that act. I'm specifically, and in fact I should actually say that today, we, although we did generally look at bidat, we were specifically ended up, ended up looking at bidat in nafil ibadat. Basically all our examples were from the nafil ibadat, right? That is normally even almost all your questions. We're not really able to do all of them because of time. But they're almost all of them are pertaining to ibadat, right? Quran and tasbih and uh, you know qiyamul and nisfi shaban and all these things, right? So do you reprimand the person who doesn't do it? That's also been a If something does not fall under any of these things, it doesn't make it sunnah. It just makes it, either you can call it bidat-e-hasana, 
بدت محمودہ جائز نفل فضیلت مستحب رائٹ یو اونلی کال نفل مستحب اف اٹ ہیز And if it's something that has no hadith to support it, to the extent that it's ibadat, it's, it's mustahab. Any type of ibadat is mustahab. Right? So Sayyidina Abu Hurairah is doing that tasbih 12,000 times. is actually going, mustahab means getting suwab. That thing which earns suwab. It's just basic jayas, you get no suwab or no sin for it. Mustahab, you get suwab if you do it, but no sin if you don't do it. Because there's no sin if you don't do it, you can't reprimand the person who doesn't do it. Right? Now what to do to prevent something that is jaiz or mustahab from escalating into a bidat. Number one, these are things that different ulama have put now, right? Number one is to leave it occasionally. Even though I told you, right, that ihtimam is permissible in the sharia, but if there's a danger that that ihtimam would lead someone to think something as far as, then you should leave it occasionally. That's why I think that the Imams in Pakistan should occasionally leave the du'a they make, the collective du'a they make after the first salah. Because by leaving it on occasion, then the people will realize this is not something that was farz or wajib, or even sunnah, and, and you should not reprimand the person who gets up and leaves, maybe he's got class to go to, or he's got to get back to work, or whatever it is. Because certainly we would all love that everybody stays in the masjid for several minutes after salah, makes du'a, makes tawbah, makes dhikr, and all of that. And there's all types of, but again, it's nothing. And that's why it's nothing, because it is a lot. Ah, I left one thing out here. You didn't tell me. That is, and they cannot specify, they cannot specify what Allah Ta'ala has left unspecified for all. Maybe I should add what they can do. What they can do is they can pick a particular amal for themselves. They can do that. They can do ihtimam themselves. They can do that. They can choose to do it regularly, daily. They can pick a particular time for that. They can pick a particular number for that. They can all do that. If a group of people, like I told you, getting together in the masjid for Nisfi Shabam, they can do that. As long as each, they keep doing these things within these boundaries. None of those things can transcend this boundary. If anyone gets elevated, if they think that, yes, this is nafal, this is nafal, this is nafal, but the number is sunnah, it's bidat. No single one of the things that they can do can cross any one of the borders that they can't do. Simple enough? Right? Now, if it escalates, so to prevent escalation, you should leave it occasionally. Right? So even though the ihtimam was allowed, if there's a risk, if that doing so much ihtimam, there's a risk that it will lead to an ihtikam that is bidat, then you should leave it occasionally. So that the masses don't think. In other words, every now and then there should be a 15th of Shaban in which that masjid doesn't have a program. There's no bayan in this masjid. We don't have to have a bayan every, every year in this masjid. You know. I mean, you'd have to balance the things, right? If there's another place, we'd say, okay, well, this must isn't. If you really, really can't do about it in your home because the mahal is so bad, then go to that other masjid. But this year, this one's not having it, right? That's the way to get around it. But at least the muhalla and the people who are the musallis of that masjid would realize that it's not necessary, right? Because the feeling that is created by the ihtimam, which is maybe not be intended, but sometimes is that it becomes necessary. So the Sharia also wants that, that even if you, the Sharia is so perfect and beautiful that it wants you to safeguard yourself sometimes against unintended consequences. But the way to safeguard yourself is not to eliminate it altogether. It's to leave it occasionally. Right? Another way to do that is education. Right? Now education doesn't have to be very sophisticated stuff. That's what the Jummah Khutbah is for, for unsophisticated education. Not that the Jummah Khutbah may be used by every Imam for this reason, but, you know, in the first Jummah of Shaban, this can be explained. Even just for five minutes, and then they can talk about something else, which is normally preparing for Ramadan, and you know all of that. But even five minutes in a Jummah Khutbah is enough education that would keep the 15th of Shaban thing within, would save it from escalating into a minute. So leaving it occasionally, and even five, ten minutes of a Jummah once a year, would be sufficient to prevent that escalation. Because the escalation normally happens when it reaches that mass scale. And the Jummah is something that also happens on a mass scale. 
right? And what goes on in the masjid is something that happens in the masjid. So when you leave it occasionally in the masjid, you have that juma. Educating on that, you're correcting it on the masjid. What to do with something that is a bidat? You see, you will find in every every issue, you will always find, right, that there's, you know, this is really what you would actually call da'at. This is what you would call amr bil maruf and nahin al munkar. That is also a type of da'at. It's not something other than da'at. And it has to be done with the same hikmat and maslahat that da'at is done with. Now, to send a mass email out, even on this one, on Bar Nabilawa, and to say it's bidat, may create some awareness, right? But what you really need to do is, you need to get to the people who are doing the bidat. So you will find two types of people. One who are genuinely confused, or genuinely misled, or didn't really know. And that means that if, they're, if they do find out, then they would leave it, right? If they realize that, okay, this is actually the Prophet does not come and eat the food, and all of these things, and if you were to explain that to them, Piyar Muhammad Kassan, but you just not to explain it. Even with them, you can't just label it as bidat. It's not sufficient. Then you'll have a second group that doesn't, it's not that they're genuinely confused. They think that this is the izhar muhabbat that they have to offer to the Prophet So what you have to do is you have to try to have husnizan on their niyat. And accept that. They take your niyat ishkar So what you should do is you should just engage with them on ishkar That's it. You should try to show them other ways of doing ishkar You can't directly disconnect them immediately. But if you start connecting them to the haqiqat of Ishq Rasul, once they are connected to that, inshallah, Aziz, they will leave this. That is a more proactive effort. That is a more beneficial effort. Simply by labeling it as bidat is rarely, very rarely going to work. Very rarely going to work. The other problem, like I said, what we have is we have the misinformation, right? Uh, and that's why we always tell you, and those of you who have not been here before, that we ask you to, to not, to please don't, don't take your deen from TV and internet. Right? Uh, I mean, you know, you see, a person may send you a really interesting email with a whole bunch of Arabic in it, but you'd be amazed, right? Uh, it's unfortunate, you know, I, and I don't really know how to equip you people for that. You know, because there's no way you can, only a trained person can really spot that. And you don't have that training. So the only way that we can do is what we try to come up with in the series is to try to show you the robustness of the scholarly tradition. So if nothing else, you would have a general feeling that nothing can be as simple and as one-sided as this email is making it sound. I don't know, I cannot catch anything in here because Bazaar has been really well done and really well argued and really well referenced. I cannot pinpoint what the problem is, but overall, we want to give you actually something very high, which is Zok. We're trying to give you zalkifaki, that you can be able to tell that it just can't be this simple or one-sided as this email is trying to make it sound to you. Even though you can't put your finger on what exactly it is. And you have to search, right? And you should always go to the person who advocates that position. Right? If you really see one, one of the biggest way ideology spreads is you let other people define other people's positions. That's a surefire way to misunderstand. Right? I would tell you, if you want to study Marxism, don't study it from me. You want to study an Islamic critique of Marxism, you study that from me. You want to study Marxism, study it from a Marxist professor. Just make sure you come to me afterwards. Actually, during... <laughs> make sure you keep coming to me, the students, right? Make sure you keep coming to me during... <laughs> right? But, you know... It's very rare. This I'm saying it's very, very rare. It's unfortunate. Ulama should be able to do it. But it's very rare that you will find somebody who can generally present to you a sign that he doesn't agree with. It's very rare. I don't even claim to be able to do that all the time. Because everybody, you have subjectivities. This is a myth. There's no such thing as being completely objective. There's no way. That is a myth. Anybody who claims that to you, that's also a sign. Telltale sign that they are flawed. Somebody says that, no, I have the objective understanding of the Quran. When is it that? It's just not possible. You studied under X group, you've read a certain set of books, and especially in this day and age, it's not really possible. Because it takes a lot of film to come, to have an approximation, which that, that can exist, to have a high approximation of that objectivity, but that takes 10, 15 years of study. And the people claiming the objectivity have one or two years of studentship. It's not possible. Right? 
Second year is to re- second thing is to really have that objectivity would require having read widely from different perspectives. And that also for the same 5, 10, 15 years and to have interacted with ulama from different backgrounds. And again, that same person claiming that it has one, two year studentship under one track, under one methodology. It's just that it's humanly not possible for that person to be objective. Right? Uh, that said, the bottom line is the sharia. So I would suggest that, you know, as what we should really be focused on is what's permissible. As far as what's preferable, there may be some things that in the Sharia are preferable. You might not be able to do it. There may be something in your Tabiyat that is preferable. You may not be able to do it. Or there may be something in the Sharia and Tabiyat that is preferable. You are able to do it, but others aren't doing it. That's not your concern right now. Your concern is that, first of all, at least I have to make sure I don't go outside the permissible. And my concern with others is that I should make sure that they don't go outside the permissible. That is really what nahi anul munka al munka. That is what the Prophet said: to safeguard people from that which is impermissible, not to fret over that I think it's permissible to only make zikr from Bukhari, and this person has accepted that it's permissible to make zikr in a different way. That does not fall under nahi anul munka, right? That I think I'm only going to do this on this particular night, and this person is doing something else on this night. If that person is doing something against the Sharia, like the things that happen in 12th Rabbi Lawa, then that's, top, that's, that's an issue of permissibility, impermissibility. Right? And you will find, Alhamdulillah, I mean not 100%, but you will find that there is by and large agreement across ulama as to permissible and impermissible. And you will find a lot of the divergence and differences have to do with what's preferable and not preferable. It's very, very rare that does happen, but it's relatively rare that there's a difference as to what is far as haram. Right? But you will find differences as to what is afzal, what is makruh, what is mustahab, what is not, what is sunnah, what is not, what is more sunnah, what is less sunnah. Those aren't things to... Really, that doesn't fall under amr bin maruf and nahin al-munkar. It doesn't fall under that scope. It fall, you have to follow your own ilm and your taqwa. Very simple, if you go back way to when I came to him the first time, there's ilm and taqwa versus akal and nafs. Don't follow your akal and nafs, rather follow ilm and taqwa. As following somebody else. Don't follow somebody else's akal and nafs. Follow somebody else on the basis of their ilm and taqwa. If you do this, these two things, again, don't worry about the differences in istihbab and karahat. And don't view that as your amr b-maruf and nahin munkar and just make sure you stay within the permissible and others are staying within the permissible and do whatever you want in terms of the preferable. And number two, if you follow ilm and taqwa in yourself and you try to follow those who have ilm and taqwa and then 90% of your questions will be resolved just through this method. It's our failure to follow this method that leads to all these questions that come in our mind. And then it's our uncle. And then we're just after the answer to these questions. And whichever email or ideological pamphlet seems to best appeal to our uncle, we're sold. Right? Okay, let's do the general concept of Isala Swap first. Then there may be different ways to do that, whether it's recitation of Quran or recitation of some tasbihat or this, like ayat karima or right. So those would be ways of doing Isala Swap. So the first question is about the Isala Swap itself. First of all, we will begin that the Prophet said clearly that there are three things that will be sadaqa jariya for a person after they pass away. Number one is knowledge that they leave behind that continues to benefit someone. So if a person benefits from the ilm of someone, after that person dies, and I'm trying to show you number one, that after a person physically dies from this earth, can they continue to get sawab after they have died? So the answer to that is yes. How? Number one, this hadith, that the Prophet said that a person can continue to earn sawab even after they have died through three ways. Number one, knowledge that they've left behind the people to continue to benefit from. Anytime you read a single hadith in Sahih Bukhari, Imam Bukhari gets sawab for that. Alright? Okay. Second, a leaving behind a child who prays for you. 
that means that you have died, and after you have died, a child prays for you. Normally, this is doing makfirat, but it doesn't say it. At least the words of Allah means are mutlaq. In other words, they were unspecified. Unspecified. Could be another type of dua. You can read Quran with the niyat of dua. You can read Tasbihat with the niyat of dua. You can read Dhu Sharif with the niyat of dua. You can read Istighfar with the niyat of dua. You can make Musnoon duas. You can make duas in English, in your own words. The Hadith has left it open. Right? Number three is a charity, which is really like a charitable deed. That sadaqah, right? That remains. So somebody made a trust fund for the poor and people continue to be fed out of that trust. Then all of the sawab for feeding that poor after that person dies continues to accrue to that person after they have died. Second is, another way to look at this issue is that can the acts of some Muslim other than children, because the hadith just said du'as of children, right? So, yes, janazah. That the Prophet mm-hmm. clearly that janazah is a du'a. Actually, that, that's why there's no ruku and sajda in salat and janazah, because it's actually du'a. And if you, if you look at the words of janazah, they're all du'as. Now why in the world would you be making du'a to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah maghfir, if it had no meaning, if it's not possible. What happens is this, that's the way our akal thinks. Your akal will tell you that they can't. No, Allah ta'ala in the Quran nikah. That a person will have laha maqasabat wa alayha maqtasabat. Right, that a person will have what they store for and they will be counted against from them what sins they did. And there's nothing anybody can do should be able to affect that. And then you will say it's not fair that so and so did this sin, XYZ sin, and the other person also did XYZ sin. This guy had somebody pray for him after he died and his sins got forgiven. And this guy didn't have anybody pray for him, so his sins don't get forgiven. That is true. That's what the Hadith are saying. And it doesn't make sense to us, right? But that is a fact that is established in Hadith, whether it makes sense to us or not. One way you can try to make sense of it is that this person must have done some amal in his life due to which this somebody feels like making dua for him afterwards. And that was actually some amal that he did. And this other person must not have done any such amal in his life. That nobody feels like making dua for him after he passes away. Or you can think that this person must have some kubuliyat in Allah subhanahu wa eyes that Allah Ta'ala has put it in the heart of somebody to make dua for them after he's passed away and this person doesn't have that. Then you have a third issue. Which is, okay, other than these things that are mentioned in the let's just throw it wide open. And let's look at these same two things. Charity and ibadat. So if I give sadaqah in the name of someone, can, I, can they get the swab for that? Right? Any type of charity, any which way you want to do it. And the second way is that if I do ibadat for someone, if I pray nafil for someone, if I do a nafil fast for someone, I do a nafil tawaf for someone, I do a nafil umrah for someone, I do a nafil hajj for someone, I do nafil tilawat of Quran for someone, I do nafil zikr of some ayat for someone, I do nafil dua for someone, all ibadat, nafil ibadat. Right? Because as far as ibadat you have to do in your own haq. That's obviously, I think everybody understands that. Two things. And also, first, charity you have to do in your own house. So, nafli sadaqah and nafli ibadat. Alright. Hafiz ibn Qayyum ta'ala says, after dividing the two types of Yisallah in this way, that if a person, if one accepts the charitable form of Yisallah and refutes the physical form, the ibad, if one accepts the sadaqat but refuses the ibadat, it would be said to him that what is the proof to show that the recitation of the Qur'an does not reach the deceased? Imam Qurtubi, who is a Maliki, Mufassir and uh, Faqih, says that just as the reward of sadaqat benefit the deceased, similarly the tilawat of Qur'an, dua and istighfar also do the same, because all of these are regarded as sadaqa in the sharia. And I understand from that that it means that that is your sadaqa to them. Koi maal ka sadaqa deta hai. Koi ibadat ki taraf se sadaqa deta hai. We've done humbly and maliki. Right? Then, some hadith. Sahih Bukhari. Number one. In Sahih Bukhari, it comes clearly that in his last house, the process of slaughter. 
some animals and made intention for himself and for all of his ummah to come who will do iman, who will bring iman on him. So he has done an amal for somebody else. He has transferred the sawab of this amal of qurbani to somebody else. And Imam Bukhari, who Allah, Sayyidina Abdullah bin Abbas narrates, it's also in Bukhari, that Sayyidina Sa'da bin Abbas was asked, I was away when his mother passed away. When he returned, he asked the Prophet will it be of any benefit if I give sadaqah on her behalf? And the Prophet replied, yes. So from Sahih Bukhari, we have established two things. Second hadith established the sadaqah, charity, and the first one established in ibadat, which was qurbani, in ibadat, which was qurbani. Second was on behalf of the Sahaba, and first one was on behalf of the Prophet But the second also shows, right? Now, Hafiz ibn Hajj al-Skalani writes in his Fatul Bari, this is now Shafi. So I had humbly, Maliki now coming Shafi Fakih. Ibn Hajj al-Skalani, Shafi, Rahimullah, writes in his commentary of this second hadith that I mentioned to you, which is the Sahaba giving charity as he saw the Suham, says that this hadith proves the permissibility of charity on behalf of the deceased and that the reward will reach him. Those are the words, Isali Thawab. Lest you think this is some Desi Urdu concept. This is an Arabic expression used by Ibn al-Hajjal al-Skalani in Fatul al-Bari on his commentary in the hadith of, this hadith of the Prophet about the Sahaba. Acha. Next, this is from Sunan al-Nasai, but it's a Sayyidith from Sunan al-Nasai. The Sayyidina Abdullah bin Abbas narrates that once the Prophet, uh, once the Sahaba asked the Prophet, Ya Rasulullah my father has passed away and he did not perform Hajj. Can I perform on Hajj on his behalf? The Prophet replied that if your father had any, did your father have any loans? Yes. Did you pay them? Yes. Then the Prophet said that in that case, the deen of Allah has more right. And after that, after you've done his deen, his loans at people, hukuk al now you should then perform Hajj on his behalf. This is again a Sahaba doing an ibadat and sending the sawab of that ibadat to somebody. In Hafiz ibn Qayyum Rahimullah's Kitab al-Ruh quotes the same hadith and another hadith in Bukhari and then says, quote, these quotations from, from the hadith all concur with the fact that when the living carry out any deed on behalf of the deceased, he says ibn Qayyum, any deed, this is Kitab al page 161. Hafiz ibn Qayyum al When the living carry out any deed on behalf of the deceased, the reward will be chill. Allah Subh'ana mentions this even in the Qur'an, in Surah Kaf, right? In this famous story of Sayyidina Musa Islam and Sayyidina Khidr anhu, right? They're traveling together and these three things happen as all of you know. What is the third thing? That... They ask for some hospitality for some people, and those people of the town don't give it to them. And on their way out, Sayyidina Khizr sees a wall that has collapsed, some rubble. And he starts engaging in hard manual labor in towns. The wali of the time tells the nabi of the time that let's engage in hard manual labor and put this wall up. Why? Later, and later in the surah, he explains that because some mal, some dunyabi wealth of some young people is buried under this wall. And in their forefathers, there were some religious people. <laughs> Right? It means the actions of people can affect you. The actions of your predecessors also have an effect on you. And the actions of your successors can also benefit you. Isala Swab is your successors, those who live after you, those who die after you do, right? They may benefit you through Isala Swab and those who died before you. That was the apostle's example. Their actions also benefit you. Now, if you say, but that's not fair, right? X doesn't have Parents who are religious say, but that's not right. I mean, that's the way Allah has made this world. Me and you got an education because our parents did something and earned money. If we think that's unfair, then we should not have gone to school and we should have sent the rickshaw to school in our place. So the reality is that Allah has put human beings in interrelationships in which they are able to both harm one another and help one another. And sometimes the choices somebody else makes impacts us. Somebody made a choice to hurt me and they didn't hurt you. I'm hurt by them now. I mean, I can't say that that's not fair. You weren't hurt. I happened to be his friend or her friend and she, he's not his friend or her friend. I got hurt and you didn't get hurt. Hold that. Right? Okay, the way of doing is Okay, since I even gave you one or two quotes that specifically mentioned Talawat, 
Now, if one person is not able to do that tilawat, I mean, you know, so if you want to give more sawab to someone, uh, for example, Hafiz ibn Hajjah Kalani also says uh, that the reward of recitation of the Quran reaches the deceased and is mustahab for one to do this form, to tilawat Abi Salih Sahab abundantly. Now let's say somebody reads that from Ibn Hajj Al-Qalani. He says, Abba Bota Mujsaneh Hoga, Me to apni nye bhi nye padta. Sidi si baat hai. Me to kaun koi kaseer utilaat bandha. Ki me abandon nye Quran padta. Now if I want, but at the same time, I want that to, I have a lot of love for my father who passed away. Wo mein ane kasrat hai, muhabbat apne walat ne. So if I want this utilaat to be done in kasrat, like Ibn Hajj Al-Qalani is saying, then I will have to gather some people to help me out in this. Right? Now the thing is, is that, I'm going to give you my own feeling, to pay somebody to do this, you take me. I just don't think you munasabe. But if friends, family, relatives, colleagues, whatever, other people who share that mahabbat basically, maybe at different levels of warmth for a person, now they don't have to get together, you see. Remember I said, you don't, it's not viewing it as necessary. Doing ihtimam or intizam, if you view it as necessary, bidatokya. But if you view it just for the sake of getting the job done, that they can, I'll, I'll SMS 15 people and tell them to read a parade. I get those 15 people to come into my house and I give them a par in each of their hand and they'll do it. It's still not forced because I'm not forcing them to come to my place. They're going to come to my place on their own. They're going to take the par on their hand on their own. They're going to read it on their own. But it means that there are people who cannot do things as individuals. right? So collectively getting together and doing an ibadah, if you use this framework, is getting together khilaf sharia No. Is your itikad that it is far as wajib sunnah or better to do it a group as opposed to individually? You can't have that. Must, the answer to that must be no. Have you elevated that collective act as something beyond nafil? If you have, that's middle. Do you reprimand the person who didn't show up for that collective Quran khani? If you do, it's a bidat. Have you specified, right, that this is the only way to do this type of If you do, that's a bidat because you specified what Allah Ta'ala left unspecified. If you're not doing any of those things, and if you're just getting together and you don't have any of those flaws, it's not a bidat. It's not a sunnat either. You see that, but it's not a bidat. I don't find the gathering mean you did today in, in the times of the Sahaba and Salaf. In a general sense, but not this specific thing, right? Are you asking, do I find this specific way or just generally? Oh, no, no. I would, I would assume that because they're, I would assume that those people would have read Quran individually. You know, because there's a lot, even this whole issue of which somebody else has been this year, reciting Quran at the graves. This has also been mentioned, and this is something that we can show you from earlier times. I wanted to add that, however, it is that, uh, in terms of isal al there's no difference in reciting the Qur'an at the grave or in your home. Uh, at the grave or at some home, whatever. At the person's cover or not at that person's cover. It's not going to make a difference in terms of the sawab. No, there are problematics that maybe, that, that's why I'm saying this. A person cannot have that aqidah. That reciting it at the grave is somehow going to generate more sawab for that person. Right. But that's what I'm saying. So if we define bidat as anything that was not found in the time of the Prophet, or anything that was not time in the Prophet in the first two generations, but this is what we tried to do in the beginning, and that is not the way the scholar traditions define bidat. That is the way Albani and Azimina define bidat. Right? So it really, you see, that's why I began with that. And you remember when I said, I said 80% of this is going to be how you choose to define what bidat is or not. Now the question is that, can you definitively disprove the other definition of bidat? If you can't, then you can't label it as a bidat universally because there are people who have a different understanding of bidat. But for yourself, you can feel that I think it's a bidat to go to Khatam Ikran, therefore I don't go. So no problem, don't go. Right? But do you, in order for you to be able to label the whole activity as a bidat, and to lab, label every single one as a bidat, you have to refute the paradigm I put up. And you have to refute all the people who contributed to this paradigm. I mean, again, this is this is what I also mentioned to you earlier that people present this as a dichotomy that Sunnah versus Bidah. 
So that's that's the paradigm. I, I taught you that myself, and I told you what that paradigm was. Uh, it, the, as long as what you can do is you can tell people that look, this itself is not sunnah. It is sunnah to do isal swab because that I showed you from a deep. Right? It is sunnah to do isal swab So this person will say, okay, how did the sahaba do it? You say the sahaba did it as individuals, and you're doing it as a collective. They'll say, okay, I'm, what I'm going to, but I'm going to also, I'm going to, this is the liner I left you before Asr. For you to say, to recite the Quran individually, for anyone to say, to recite the Quran individually is better than reciting it collectively. You have no proof for that. Because just the fact that the Sahaba did it individually doesn't mean it's better than doing it collectively. That's a misconception we have. We don't, we can't say that. But the Sahaba, when the Sahaba did something, it established something as permissible. That's like me telling you that Sayyidina Abu, you, what type of tasbih do you do? You say, may, 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 Gadi Chalate worked on the way to office, Jitni Bi Samana Tame Kata. I say, Sayyidina Abu Hayr did it 12,000 times. That is better than the way you do it. I can't say that. So I actually cannot, this is radically, I mean, I, I would have, if I sent it to you in the beginning, you would have thrown me out of the house in the beginning. Now after studying the whole thing and realizing, even because if we take that, that is the same, that's what I'm saying, Malik and Lay's letter. That is the same thing people do in fiqh. That they base their position on one particular sahaba and they say that is absolute to all other positions. You can't do that. Just the fact that a sahaba did something doesn't make it necessarily better. If the Prophet saw some, that's something different. But if your implication in that is to suggest that collective is less than individual, then your statement is a bidat. Because just like I told you that you cannot elevate something higher than Zishriya to do anything that suggests or insinuates or implies or could be held to imply that you're lowering something below its level. That you're also specifying. Because Allah has left Isa al-Iswab unspecified. There is nothing in our deen that says that that which was unspecified, watch this carefully, there is no proof in the deen unless you want to tell it to me, that that which Allah Ta'ala left unspecified, it is better to do it in the particular way the Sahaba did it. There is no proof to that effect. The Sahaba did it according to their own tabiyat, and I showed you that they did things according to their own tabiyat. Right? In the time of the Prophet and after the time of the Prophet, because Allah Ta'ala left that open. They had their own way of doing it. You may have your own way of doing it. Right? But if a person feels that no, the, the way the Sahaba did is better just because they're Sahaba, they have that other understanding, they would feel that way. And they will, they will say exactly what you were saying, that they will tell somebody, look, the Sahaba did it individually, they didn't do it collectively. Right? 